We'll begin this morning in chapter 8, verse 12, and we'll go all the way down to verse 25. That's the intention and the plan. And as I was going through it, I mean, this chapter is just packed with truth. So we'll touch on a lot of this as we go through, but believe me, there is so much more to try to comprehend. Almost every verse could be a sermon in itself. And I say that to say I've tried to encapsulate some of the information for today in a way that I don't normally do, but I like doing. So I've given some topic headings for today. Chapter 8 is about living a spiritual life. A lot of people say that they're spiritual, but that can mean a lot of different things. Have you found that you've talked to spiritual people and that means that they burn incense or that means that they do yoga or there's all kinds of spiritual people. So when we say, well, I'm a spiritual person, what does that even mean? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to them? What does it mean to me? What does it mean to God? And so being a spiritual person, I've met a lot of spiritual people. Anytime I talk to someone like at the soup kitchen or on the downtown mall, they say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a spiritual person. I pray. But then I have to ask, well, who do you pray to? How do you know the the God that you're praying to? And so there's lots of questions. Spirituality can be really confusing. And chapter eight of Romans gives us and defines for us what does it mean to live a spiritual life. Does living a spiritual life mean I show up at church and I read the Bible and I memorize my Bible and I take communion? Is that what it means to have a spiritual life? And we'll answer some of those questions as we go through chapter eight. So if you like to take notes, what I suggest that you do, here's the four things we'll just look at today as we look at what the Spirit of God does in my life, the reality of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in my life, and I'll explain that as we go through. But number one, for today, I get a new sense of indebtedness to God. Number two, I have a new sense of direction for my life. Number three, I have a new sense of identity. And number four, I have a new sense of things to look forward to, something to look forward to in the future. Again, those are just kind of some simple things that we'll go through and you'll see in the scripture here. But just by way of reminder, we've talked about the fact that Romans is a book about God's amazing grace. And that's the title of the whole study. Romans tells us about the grace of God, the goodness, the gifting of God, God's goodness toward us. He wants to give to us, not take from us. He loves us. But the problem is we've all been found guilty and God has to deal with the guilt of our sin. And so chapter seven, just allow me a small introduction here. Chapter 7, we talked about what it's like to try to live a spiritual life, but in our own power, without any help. God tells us what he wants us to do, and we attempt to try to do it in our own power, and we find that we just can't do it. And here's the way I would compare this. I've used Michael Phelps in swimming in the past because I'm a lousy swimmer. Another thing I'm lousy at is math. Anybody else join me in just not a math person? Anybody not math people? Okay. So I just don't have a mathematical mind. My mind is not linear like that. I'm all over the place. So you could sit me down. I could have Albert Einstein as my instructor. And he could sit me down and he could tell me all the principles about math. And I could try to grow a little bit. I could gain a little bit of understanding. But I'm just not wired for mathematics. It's just not who I am. I'm just not good at it. So Albert Einstein could try so hard to teach me about math. But what would ultimately happen is the failure is not on his part, his ability to explain math to me and his ability to know how to do math. He could explain it perfectly and wonderfully and completely. The problem is with me. I don't know how to do math. So it'd be very frustrating for Albert Einstein and very frustrating for me. And that's what it's like to try to do what God says 
You know, you could say, well, I go to church so I can learn from Jesus. And you can come and you can learn about loving your neighbor as yourself. And we can teach you about being a servant and all those things. And you can learn all the truths. But the problem is then you find that you go home and you go, I didn't love my neighbor today. I really struggle with love in general, as a matter of fact. I grew up in a dysfunctional home and yada, yada, yada. And I just don't do it. And so we can know all the things. And Jesus could be our teacher and you can try to live that kind of Christian life, and you'll grow a little bit as you come and you hear the Word. The Word of God is powerful. But you'll always feel this sense of, I'm failing. Now, what if Albert Einstein could take his nature, his spirit, his mind, and take it out of himself, or duplicate it, clone it, and then he could just kind of miraculously unzip me in my brain, and he could put his mind into mine, and his life into mine, and then zip me back up, And then he put math problems in front of me. And what do you think would happen? Hypothetically speaking, I would be pretty phenomenal at math, right? Because I would now have the mind of Albert Einstein in me. I would now have the heart of Albert Einstein in me. And now all of a sudden, I wouldn't need that same instruction because it would be on the inside. And that's the difference between living a spirit-filled life versus just living a church life. It's not just learning from Jesus, and that's part of it, but it's the Spirit of God, the nature of God, the nature of Jesus coming to live in my life and then living his life through me. Albert Einstein could then do math through me. I know it sounds weird, doesn't it? It's not a concept we're familiar with or used to. And so I try to give this example to say, this is what chapter 8 is about. Chapter 8 is about Albert Einstein doing math through me for me, on my behalf, doing the things I could never do for myself because I lacked the ability. So it's about Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God. Remember that we serve a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, three different persons, but all one God, the same exact nature. Everything that God is, Jesus is. Everything that Jesus is, the Spirit is. Everything that the Spirit is, God is. They are the same in nature. And that Spirit, when we talk about the Spirit of God, It's the life of God, the nature of God coming into my life. In the Old Testament, it's talked about as God says, I will write my law, my instruction on your heart. I'll put my heart on your heart. That's from Jeremiah chapter 31. So as we pick back up, we're learning part of what we get. We step away from thinking about religion as just a bunch of set of rules and rituals we go through into this idea that God has put his life in mind. And that's not something we have to pretend or make up. That's something God does. That's a miracle. You believe in miracles? You have to, to be a Christian. It's a miracle that God can take his life and put it in mind. I mean, that's pretty marvelous. And so as a result of that, we looked in chapter 8. There's no condemnation. Now I'm overcoming the power of sin and death in my life. And all these things are part and parcel of having my life joined to God's in that intimate way. And we ended with the Spirit of God who raised Jesus up from the dead last week in verse 11 dwells in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's a miracle. That same spirit dwells in you, and because of that, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. And we left off there, and that brings us to the therefore of verse 12. We get into our first kind of heading. We have a new sense of indebtedness toward God. Verse 12 says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors. Not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, 
you will live. So stop right there. That's just two verses. He says, therefore, we are debtors. He includes himself. We're debtors. The problem is, Paul would say, we're just paying back the wrong person. See, he says, we're debtors not to the flesh. How many of you have ever, maybe you've said it, or maybe you've heard someone else say it. They go out, Friday comes, paycheck day. You go out and take your paycheck, and you go right to food line, right to the liquor aisle, the booze aisle. You grab your case, and you say, I deserve this. I earned this. I owe it to myself. Well, when you say, I owe it to myself, recognize that the myself you're talking about is not the me that you really are. That's the me, that's the flesh. The flesh says, you need alcohol. Or you go, instead of the the alcohol aisle, it's the frozen food aisle, and it's that two half pints of briars. Oh, now I'm talking your language, huh? I just, I deserve this. I, I owe it to myself, right? You need this or you need that. And you go, yeah. Then you start to agree with the flesh, with that sinful nature that's apart from God, that self-pleasing, self-desiring part of you. That's not really you, Paul said in chapter 7. That's not really who you are if you're a Christian. But then you have this desire and you go, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I want. When has that voice ever led you to do good things, life-giving things? For me, it's the buffet. Man, Israel, the food was so good. And so there we are in Israel, and there's this buffet, and, it's, and desserts everywhere, desserts. And I'm like, I don't usually eat dessert because I've become addicted to that stuff. I can eat lots of dessert. But when we're in Israel, I'm like, yeah, I'm letting down my guard. I owe it to myself. So then in my rational moment, I think, why do I owe it myself to punish myself? Like, why am I punishing myself and saying I deserve it? That doesn't make sense. And that's what Paul's saying. We have a debt. But the flesh has never led us into good things. The flesh, that natural base part of ourselves that says, well, you owe it to yourself. Don't let them get away with that. You need to stand up for yourself. You need to say something about that. You have an outburst of anger. Yeah, I'm going to let it fly. And then that causes a lot of trouble, right? You end up in jail because you just beat somebody up again. And, and these are all stories of people that I've talked to in the past. But he says, why do you think you owe your flesh something? Instead, he says, he doesn't actually say it, but the implication is we're debtors not to the flesh because that's going to kill you. But he says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. So he never actually says you're debtors to God, but that's the implication. And he says, instead of letting the flesh call the shots in your life and feeling like you owe something to your old nature, why not feel like... Maybe I owe God something. You know, the question is, do you ever sit and reflect on where you would be if it wasn't for God? Where would you be? What would your life be like? Look at all that he's done for you. I mean, when I have a sense of indebtedness, it's usually because someone has just blessed me like crazy. So, you know, they've been so good to me, or they helped me out in a really cool way. They helped me move some furniture or fixed my car. And I just feel like, man, I want to pay you back somehow. The Bible says the one who is forgiven much loves much. It's a sense of indebtedness. Not it's forced indebtedness, but it's internal. And he says, so if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds, the deeds of the body, the things that my body, remember Paul said that sin dwells in your body? So my body kind of has a mind of its own. There's times when I'm going, my body is just drawing me into sin, drawing me to look at that or go there. I mean, all those silly pictures on the side of that computer screen that are, you know, come and see what happened to this, you know, what? 
Why these cheerleaders dressed that way and it's all drawn and your body goes, oh, I want to look at that. Your flesh says, yes, I want more. I want more food or I want more pleasure. And your spirit goes, ah, I got, no, I should stay away from that. Well, God, I want to keep my life pure for you. And we don't do it. Remember, look what he says here. He says, we don't do it in our own strength. Did you notice that? The word deeds, by the way, is the Greek word praxis, which we understand to be a thought becoming an action. So the body wants to take that thought or that temptation and wants you to act on that. But that's not you as a Christian. That's not you. Instead, he doesn't say you have to do the work to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's not what he says. He says, how do we do it? How does it happen? By your own willpower, by your own strength? What's he say? By the Spirit. Well, that sounds great. The Spirit is going to help me put the death of deeds of the body. Well, how does that work? Well, Galatians chapter 5. Just listen. Try to concentrate. And I'll read Galatians 5 to you. And you'll kind of get a sense how this works. Paul says in Galatians, I say then, walk in the Spirit. Live or walk according to the Spirit. And you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. In other words, if you get in an elevator... You can't go up and down at the same time. you got to pick away, right? That's just common sense. And by picking one, you pick against the other. So if you get in the elevator and you're somewhere in the middle of the building and you decide to go up, that's a choice. You've chosen anti-down. You're against down because you're going up. And that's how it works with life in the spirit. Now you're doing the things that God wants. He says, walk in the spirit and in the Greek, it's a double negative. It's called an emphatic negation, which means that it is impossible. If you are walking in the Spirit, and the Spirit of God is against the flesh, these things are contrary to one another, Paul says, you can't do both at once. You can't walk in the flesh and the Spirit together. So by choosing God and following Him, that's your natural antidote against sin. Because you can't do what God wants and sin at the same time. So that's how by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body. Let's just go through this for a second. Just so we're talking about the flesh. Chapter 5, verse 19 says, The works of the flesh are evident. So just in case you're wondering, what you're talking about flesh, Steve, I don't know what that looks like. Well, here you go. They are adultery, fornication, or sex outside of marriage, apart from that marriage commitment, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, Hatred, contentions. Anybody have contentions? Any contentious relationship with somebody? That's a work of the flesh. Jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions. That really gets messy when you bring selfish ambitions into church. That really messes things up. Dissensions or divisions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. So there's just some examples because he says, and the like, and anything else like that. Well, that's how you know. Here's the list. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. How can you murder someone you love? How can you commit adultery when you love your spouse? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and the one we like to skip, self-control. Oh, I know, groan, big groan. But see, again, self-control can imply, now I've got to get a hold of myself. But actually, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control because now the Spirit, listen, the Spirit of God is in control of the self, the me. It's not that I've gotten control of my life. 
It's that God's gotten control of my life. And he tells the flesh what to do and what not to do. I would suggest that you read that if you get a chance. Galatians chapter 5. I want to keep pressing on. So the Spirit gives us a sense of indebtedness to God that now I have this power because of my desire to demonstrate a thankfulness and gratitude to God by not doing the things that are displeasing to Him. It actually gives me power over sin. Look at verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So again, the next thing is I have a new direction for my life. Did you see that in verse 14? For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So a couple interesting things about that. Being a Christian isn't just about getting saved. See, the Spirit of God, I'm born again by the Spirit of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not just that I show up to church and read my Bible and sing some songs and and go through the motions once a week. That's not being a Christian. That's being a churchian person. I don't know what you want to call that. Being a church person. But there's a difference. He says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God. Isn't that what Jesus called his disciples to do? Come and follow me. Come and follow me. How can you be led unless you're willing to follow? So the simplicity of being a Christian is I am a follower of Jesus Christ. That means when Jesus has a desire to, he leads me. He wants to draw me. Now the question is for you, how easily led are you? Or what else is leading you? See, sometimes the Spirit of God gets a lot of credit for stuff he doesn't do. You maybe have experienced some kind of holy roller church where people are saying the Spirit came over me and I needed to bark like a dog. Or I, you know, the Spirit of God gets all kinds of credit for stuff he never did and doesn't do. So that's why we're kind of a little nervous about being led by the Spirit. I don't know if that's safe. Well, if the fruit of the Spirit, the results of being led by the Spirit are love and joy and peace, that sounds pretty good to me. So this is about guidance in my life. Now I have an internal compass that's guiding my life. I'm being led by the Spirit. That's about my daily decisions. Just one quick example. I was thinking back on a trip I took to Ukraine a number of years ago. You know, of course, you go to Ukraine, we're in Kiev, and uh, there's all kinds of street kids. They're dirty, they're nasty, their parents are alcoholics, and the kids just leave the house in the morning, and they go and they panhandle. They see tourists, and boom, they're like a flock of buzzards, and they're around you, and their hands are out, and they're so dirty, and you just would love to help all of them, but everybody there tells you, no, no, just tell them to get away, you know, because you don't have money for all of them, and, and once you pay, give something to one, then you're swarmed, and so you just tell them, okay, get out of here, go away, kids. And then on you go with your thing. And so we had had that experience. And the next morning, I'm getting up in the morning because you can't drink the water in Ukraine. So I go to the, out of the hotel to go find a store to get some water. And as I'm walking down the street, a little street kid is coming toward me. And, you know, I walk past him and he looks at me and I look at him. And you know, I'm like, hey, and keep on moving. And as soon as I walk past him, I hear the voice of God. I don't say that very often. I don't say that casually. Part of the role of the Spirit of God is to bring to remembrance the words of Jesus in your life. So to be led by the Spirit is to have the Spirit of God in you, bringing to remembrance the Word of God that you're reading and using that to guide your life at any given moment in time. That's one way. There's other ways the Spirit of God leads you. So I walked past and God brought to mind, I hadn't read it, I hadn't looked at it, but the verse from Matthew, I think it's chapter 10, if anyone gives a cup of water to one of these little ones because they're my disciple. That's all I needed to hear. The Lord told me, hey, 
it's pleasing to me if you give a cup of cold water to one of these little ones. Now, the law never would have helped me with that. I needed personal guidance from God to say, Steve, here's what I want you to do at this time. And so the Lord stopped me in my tracks. I looked back, and that kid had stopped, and he looked back at me, and we locked eyes, and I said, come on. And we went to the store. I got him some water. Our group ended up getting him some new shoes, and his feet and shoes were so dirty. And we got him these new shoes, and he wanted to switch them out, but he was so embarrassed. We had to give him, like, handy wipes, you know, some wipes to clean his feet. They were so dirty, caked with dirt. And so he turned around and had to wash off his feet. We were going to wash his feet. I mean, this is what the Spirit of God leads you to do. We're going to wash his feet and clean them up. He was embarrassed, but he got cleaned up, put his shoes back on. And in one instance, a specific instance of the direct guidance of God, but every day as you're thinking about the Word of God and meditating on the Word of God, God is working that into your mind and you're now thinking, that's what it said about the Spirit-filled life, right? That your mind is set on the things of God. And it's that kind of life, a person that's led by the Spirit, that's hearing from God on the inside. That is the kind of person that he says, this is the real litmus test of Christianity. He says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. See, we've been under the impression, and many want to say, that everybody's a child of God. And that sounds really good, doesn't it? Listen, the Bible says everybody's a creation of God. But John chapter 1 tells us that one only becomes a child of God when they receive him. And the results of receiving him are that you are now being led by the Spirit. So it's a good question to ask yourself, am I a person who is just showing up for church and then doing what I want to do? Or am I being led by the Spirit in my life? Is the Spirit of God drawing me into fellowship? Or do I stay away from church? Does the Spirit of God draw me into his word? Or does the Spirit of God draw me closer to Christ? Or do I find myself just avoiding all of those things? Maybe just the desire. You know, he, God gives you the desires of your heart. He puts new desires in you. So these are all part of being led by the Spirit. So I say this, and I think the important thing about it is there's so many people that sit in church are self-deceived. You might think, well, I'm, I'm doing the right things. I'm checking the boxes. I show up at church. I try not to sleep every Sunday. I put a little something in the offering box, and you feel like, okay, I'm good. Boom. Check it off the list. I go up for communion. But the real dynamic of the Spirit-filled life, or what you might call the normal Christian life, is that God is at work on the inside, that actually that's the leading force. Not your flesh, not people-pleasing. Man, you got to resist against that stuff. There's a lot of people that want to tell you what to do. But Jesus said, my sheep, they know my voice. And what do they do, church? They follow me. My sheep know my voice, and they hear it, and they follow me. So these are the sons of God. Verse 15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So I have a new sense of indebtedness to God. I have a new direction for my life, and it's not a kooky, strange direction. It's a direction toward God. And now I have a new identity. As many as are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive, listen carefully, the spirit of bondage or slavery again to fear. I wonder how many of you would consider your Christian life slavery, drudgery. Oh, do I have to go to church today? Oh, do I have to pray? 
I mean, for some of you, I mean, like that church is just something, an inconvenience that you endure so you don't have to feel guilty the rest of the week. Listen, from the bottom of my pastoral heart, I know we can do better. And I know the world is looking for us to be who we really are and not just to be, as we've said, playing church. So the children of God, he uses sons as a representative, sons and daughters. He says, you didn't, you didn't receive the spirit of bondage. You're not in slavery to God. God doesn't want you to serve him and complain about it all the time. Like that's workspace. That's slavery. And there's a difference in the house between a son and a slave. And that's what Paul's trying to say. A slave is always fearful that they're going to make a mistake. They're going to do something wrong. That's not the spirit that I gave you. That's not from me. But instead, he said, you've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. See, a lot of people say that they pray, but they can't say that they pray to their Father in heaven unless they're a child. A number of years ago, we were at the Fashion Square Mall up on 29. And we had walked into the mall. I think Helga was with me and Jacob and Madeline. And, and they were much younger as a number of years ago. And another family was in there. And the mom had her two kids. And her son happened to be having a stomach virus coming on right there in like JCPenney. So her son begins to throw up there in the store. And she's freaking out, you know. So she's trying to get her son to get him taken care of. So she just leaves her daughter right there. So Helga and I are there going, well, unless, you know, we don't want anybody bad to get a hold of this girl. So she runs around the corner with her son, try to get him cleaned up. And, and we look around, we're like, man, we got to take care of this girl. You know, we got to help her out. So we're like, okay, come on, honey, let's, we'll take you over to, to go find your, your mom. We figured they went to the bathroom. Well, guess what? They didn't go to the bathroom. So now we've taken this young girl who doesn't belong to us. And we walked her over to the bathrooms in the mall to find the mom's not there. So we're like, oh, that's strange. She's not here. So we come out of the bathrooms and here comes a security guard from the mall with the mom who had gone to her car and come back to see her daughter missing. And they're looking at us like, okay, you got some splaining to do. <laughs> Why? Because she's not my daughter. She was crying out for her mom. And she doesn't belong to me. She wasn't under my authority. She wasn't crying out to me. She was crying out for her parents. And they almost got me in a lot of trouble. <laughs> I almost had a new prison ministry to look forward to. <laughs> but the Spirit of God gives you a new identity. You're no longer in Adam or in the flesh. You are now a child of God. And that's an intimate relationship by which you cry out, Father. Now, I want to clarify one quick thing here. A lot of you have been taught, uh, I have been taught that Abba is what little children say. Abba is Aramaic for Father and that somehow this is a term of endearment that children use of their father. And what I found out in my studies, I'm sorry to disappoint you, it's not true. Preach is great, but it's not true. It's a term that a child, a young child, an older child, anybody uses in Aramaic for father. But the point is still the same, is that we have a relationship with God. It's not about rules. It's not about rituals. It's not about religion. Everything we get in Christ, we get because we now have a relationship with God. And it's that relationship that allows me to cry out to God as my father. Because he's given me the spirit of adoption. Adoption in Roman culture meant that when you were under, as a child, you were under complete authority of your father's house. Your father had such control over your life that he could even kill you if he wanted to. He had that level of control. 
Your whole life was under his authority. But he also had responsibility to care for you as well. Figure that one out, okay? If you were a child and you got in trouble and you owed somebody money, it would be your father's responsibility. He was responsible for the debt you accrued while you were under his care. So to be adopted, what that meant practically in Roman culture, this is what Paul's alluding to, it meant that you were transferred from the authority of one father to the authority of another father. And that meant that everything connected with your old life, your old authority under that old household, that was all dissolved, gone. Any debt you owed, anything that was connected to that life was done. And you started, in effect, a brand new life under a new father, under new authority. And that's what Paul's is saying. He's saying, you've got a brand new identity. And I like this. He says, you've not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Look at verse 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So in Roman culture, it took seven witnesses to witness this thing. But for us, we have the witness of the spirit. There's something in you that knew you were fatherless. You know, I find it in people, people are searching, they're searching, they're searching for a place to belong. If you've ever known someone that was an orphan, they're longing to feel accepted and wanted. If, you're, if you've been orphaned, if you've been grown up in foster care, you know that feeling of not really feeling that nobody wants you, being shuttled from house to house to house, foster family to foster family, and you feel like nobody could possibly want you. And here Paul is saying, God says, he looks at you in your pitiful state and he says, I want to adopt him. And then his process begins to love you back to health. You've been given a spirit of adoption by which you cried, Abba, Father. And you know it, you know it, you know it inside that you're a Christian. You know it, that you know it, that you know it inside that you are a child of God. And the evidence is there in your life. The evidence is there externally. You're being led by the Spirit. Your mind is on the things of God. And the evidence is there internally. God's done a work in your life. And you know that this isn't normal. You know that there's a relationship. The Spirit of God bears witness with your spirit that you're the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now again, not only do we have a new identity, but we can start the category. We have something to look forward to. Imagine your last name was Walton. I read an article back a couple months ago, 2017, in one day that Walmart stock went like way up and it added $12.7 billion to the inheritance, the value of Sam Walton's estate, that he has like four benefactors that are going to receive that. But imagine you were an heir to the Walton estate. How many billions of dollars is that? I don't even know, but that's pretty remarkable. So you get some of that now. I mean, some of the benefit of being in that family you get now, but you don't get the inheritance till later on. Now, in Roman culture, your father didn't have to die till you became an heir. You were the continuation of your father's estate. And so it's a little bit different than what we're used to. God doesn't have to die for us to become inheritors of his estate. But what does God own? Uh, everything? That'd be a pretty safe bet. And this says that because now we've been adopted, one of the things we get from that is full rights to all that God has. God has given you all things freely to enjoy. And not only are we heirs, we have now have this promise of God. We have everything that God has is ours. 
And we're joint heirs with Christ. We're on equal standing with Christ because Christ is in us. We are co-heirs with Christ. But now watch, here's the one caveat, and then we'll close up. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now, we were doing really good till we got to the word suffer, weren't we? I mean, we were on a roll. Yes, pastor, led by the Spirit, I'm with you. You know, inheritance, future, you know, all that God has. Yes, co-heirs, great. But then he brings in this word suffer, which we'll talk more about next week. Only to say this, I think we're famous for in the church wanting, as they say, the uh, crown without the cross. You see, when we've been connected to Christ, did Jesus suffer? Yeah, he suffered. He suffered against fighting against sin. He suffered because of our sin. And so as we look at living our Christian life being led by the Spirit, some of that involves suffering. And that means suffering from persecution, which is not necessarily our deal, maybe a little bit, our family, our workplace, maybe we get some of that. But sometimes it's suffering, fighting against sin in your own life. Isn't that what he says here? By the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. That hurts. It's not fun to tell ourselves no. It's not fun to tell my flesh no, because my flesh screams at me, yes. And then I scream back, no. And then sometimes my flesh wins, and sometimes the Spirit wins. And some of the reason that people don't ever get free from addiction is because when you take that step out of addiction, you got to deal with some pain before you get to freedom. Have you understood that? You know that that's true? It's never fun to tell no to the flesh, but as you tell the flesh no, and you tell the Spirit yes, the flesh begins to die, and it stops screaming so loud, and that involves some hardship and some suffering. It means that some friends, they're not going to want to hang out with you because they want to party and you don't, and you're going to say no to that. And so there's some hardship and suffering that comes along from being a Christian, walking with Jesus, because he's doing a work in us, and that involves a little bit of suffering. But Paul's going to tell us next week, but little we have to suffer for him is so small relative to all the blessings that we get from following him and being one of his children.